welcome to Unboxing, Play and Profit for the Gaming Curious. I'm Lane Nooney. I'm Yost Vendrana. And we are here digging deep on why games matter in today's economy. On the docket today, Wednesday, October 4th, Epic lays off 16% of its workforce in an effort to get a grip on the crater economy. EA loses the FIFA brand, but was the FIFA brand all that great to begin with? And we talk with haptics expert David Parisi about the new Assassin's Creed Mirage haptic shirt and whether feeling the game is really a good idea. All that and more with your two very sparkling co-hosts, but first, we've got some catching up to do. Good morning, Yoast. It is way too early and you are calling in from Las Vegas. What are you doing? I'm phoning it I'm phoning it in from Vegas. Quite literally. I, I'm not gambling because I don't like gambling. I tried twice. It I sucked. I lost at gambling. I failed at gambling. I'm here for work, as always. You know, it's an interesting it's a summit for this adventure firm and I have to beat a few large publishers and money people and it's interesting to see like how you have this background of people just putting their money in slots machines and then you're standing in this sort of sectioned off area elbowing with all these like big wigs it's very like the social contrast is always stark for me although venture capital has a quality of just putting money in slot machines itself see i knew you'd pick up on the metaphor there i knew you'd there we go there we go right we're only we're only looking for a whale right who cares if 50 percent fail it's just, it's like you just you build like a risk profile and then you go it's like well what's the payout of the slot machine or this you know portfolio Wow. Okay. Fascinating insights from the financial landscape of Las Vegas. Will you be doing any fun activities while you're in Vegas? No late night Cirque du Soleil, no impersonator fetishes that you have? I will not be going to Cirque du Soleil. I don't want to sit in a crowd like that. You know, COVID (laughs) is back on the rise. You think people are nuts here. No, it's just, I'm very boring when it comes to these trips like you think like oh my god you're gonna go to vegas it has like, these clubs and your fellow yeah. countryman tiesto is playing in his residency and there's all these amazing places to do and drink and eat i'll get a steak and then that's kind of it like i don't really drink when i'm here i don't gamble i don't engage with the locals whatever it's like just it's for me it's like penn station with extra colors so i just passed through because it's business, you know, like the thing is like you, when you start traveling all the time, you realize like, you just got to take it very boring and very simple. So I enjoy the scenery. I get, I do one of my splurges is I get like a high floor hotel room. So I'm on the 53rd floor and I can look at the mountain and you can see all of goddamn Vegas. It's amazing. And That's so you very wake cool. up, you're like, it's like sleeping in a helicopter. Are you on the strip? I'm yeah at the Aria. So I'm just right down there. Oh, oh. Yeah. I like the novelty hotels, you know, that really go for it from Caesar's Palace to Circus Circus. There's it's it's <laughs> it's a it's a universe that is clearly built for people in postmodern theory, because this is just an infinite resource Like you could just yes. write book after book after. Like the one thing that always sticks with me is how the, is the air control. So you go to these hotels, they each have their own scent. And it's just, for me, it's, I find it just, I have to leave the hotel every once in a while just to gasp some like smog air outside <laughs> in the desert because it's just, it's like I've been hanging out with like middle-aged men who are insecure about their 
physical appearance and they just overdo it with the color. But I always enjoy it. It's just a, it's a crazy, I'm always happy to come back to New York with this dirty, gritty floods. You're like, well, at least it's real. You know, yeah. At least it's people. Yeah. It gives you, gives you a new way of appreciating your home. Have you been? I've, I've been to Vegas several times. The first time was part of a road trip I took in my early 20s with five people in a station wagon where we drove through eight states and <laughs> like it was a movie it was, was it, it, it we did get caught in a dust storm at one point it was five people staying in a, a circus circus hotel room with two queen beds we were absolutely broke we couldn't you play stayed at circus circus I remember playing dollar blackjack that was what I could mm. afford at slots of fun. I believe, or Penny Town. You know how the, the strip kind of moves in relationship to your financial ambition? So, you know, Circus Circus is on the, like, we know you don't have a lot of money, you know? So oh. I appreciate the grandeur of Vegas, but speaking of themed environments, on Sunday, I went to the New York Renaissance Fair. What? <laughs> have you ever been to a Renaissance Fair? Yost? Why would I go to a Renaissance fair? <laughs> I mean, no, please, indulge me. Like, like, so it was like, what happens? I know from the the ancient text. Okay, you really like Game of Thrones. Yes. Okay, so, so okay, go. What? Oh, so the New York Renaissance Fair is one of the biggest. It was sold out this weekend. There were thousands, <laughs> thousands of people there. I went with a group of friends. We absolutely left not early enough to not get stuck in one of the worst traffic lines of my life. It was an hour and 45 minutes to go two miles to get to parking. So what? anyone listening in the New York area thinking of going to the Ren Fair for the closing weekend, your ass needs to be in a car by 7 a.m. Because yeah, you don't you need want... to be there now. Yeah. It was one of the most stressful car experiences I've ever had, but it's hard to stay mad when you park and everyone's getting out of their car and they have like elf ears on and they're wearing leather jerkins. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's an absurdity. You know, it's the one place where I feel like, you know, queer people and, and white nationalists can find a shared set of interests. <laughs> Because there's definitely a subset of people who are there because they think they are like honoring a European past that they don't know anything about. Right? And then there's definitely like a bunch of gays who just want to be elves. And <laughs> and and these the, here at the Ren Fair, these communities meet. Uh, but everyone's so hardworking. You get called my lord and my lady all day long there are at, there's a dedicated line for turkey legs the one disappointment of the new york renaissance fair is that it is unlike other fairs i've been to it's almost entirely consumptive there's things you can go see like there's a joust there's archery tournaments there's some falconry exhibit there's performances and things like that but they don't do anything in the historical reenactment arena. You know, I've been to Ren Fairs where there's actually a guy like running a forge and making a fucking horseshoe in the way that they would have done in, you know, the 1500s or something like that. Or, you know, women braiding flower garland and 
met people blowing glass and there's just unfortunately there's like none of that at this fair it's just booths and booths and booths of like do you need a leather bound scroll do you want a tarot reading i did buy a caplet which what <laughs> why like I, every week i learned something new about lane okay I'll I'll buy it. What's a cape? What's a cape? You know, it's like a little half cape. It just you know it goes. <laughs> a half cape. It goes half around cape. around the shoulders. It has a hood. It's like browning green. I got a little drunk and decided that my gender was Robin Hood, and that was uh, that was all I needed to just go over the tipping point where I was like, my inner child really wants this. So that's they're fantastic. Gonna, are you, gonna, gonna are you planning on wearing that around campus? It's a it's a little too Ren Fairy for outdoor use, but uh, at least in this environment. But I am starting a new tabletop role playing group, so oh, I'll definitely perfect. be wearing it there. You know, if I spent some time upstate, maybe going on hikes, take out my wool capelet. Why not? Why not? That sounds amazing. So is there people at this Renaissance Fair that are kind of not really quite getting what the protocol is and they're walking around dressed as like Ezio from Assassin's Creed or like, do you have any of that going on? The Renaissance Fair is very liberal in terms of time periods that you can dress up in. There's a whole subset of people who are into doing like a Roman thing, you know, like dudes who want to dress no like way. a Roman centurion. Yeah, and walk Victorian around the Ren Fair. Yes, yes, exactly. And then they have theme weekends. One of the theme weekends is uh, the Time Travelers weekend. That's the weekend where if you want to wear your Star Trek costume to the Ren Fair, that's where that's when you do it. There's a Pirates weekend. Uh, there's people who do steampunk stuff, you know, like top hats with gears on them and goggles and things like that. It's it's very fluid. Historical accuracy is out the window. You know that's not what this is really about. I would say. Okay, so it's yeah, it seems all very like sort of Western focused. If I look at the pictures, yes, it's a lot yes. of uh, you yeah. know sort of all the way from maybe like Eastern Europe to to you know into the West, like that's sort of like the vibe. Like I don't see they they started in England and some in Germany as a as a tradition. Hmm initially as educational events, but have, have I think particularly in a, a sort of post Game of Thrones, post Lord of the Rings space, they're very much about just like showing up somewhere and getting to be the main character in your own story. Mm -hmm. So a lot of white people, a lot of white people. Oh yeah. Or this was a more diverse year than I had seen before. And I think that speaks to the general that, that this kind of stuff isn't regarded as so niche. Uh, anymore. That's fantastic. I want to see your capelet. All right. Next time, we're, ha next time we're having beers around the NYU area, I'm going to insist you wear your okay. capelet. Okay. I'll wear my capelet just for you. Your All finest right. bruise. <laughs> More wine, milady. All right. Yes. Okay. All, All right. right. On that I'm note, let's, let's talk about some games news, right? Let's talk about serious stuff. So the big games news for the week, last Thursday, Epic Games announced that it would be laying off 16% of its workforce. That comes to about 830 people. Tim Sweeney sent a mass email to his employees that was posted soon thereafter on the Epic website. So they'll also be divesting from Bandcamp, 
and a few other corporate details going on. Now, of course, layoffs are always bad for workers, are sometimes good for companies. This is part of Epic's larger effort to reduce costs, which it had been trying to do through net zero hiring, but just kind of couldn't get the numbers to come out even. Yost, how is this announcement impacting Epic's business? That's a good question. So it's a lot of people, and that has everything to do with uh, having accumulated lots of staff, right? So Epic has been growing explosively. It, you know, it, it, over the course of just a few years, it went to, I think, 8,000 or so employees, close to 10,000. And it's that type of growth is cool when the getting is good. But once things get a little harder, when the business or the economics change, like uh, Tim Sweeney indicates, you know, you got to let people go. So the, I guess the upside, which I think, generally speaking, whenever there's layoffs in the games industry, everybody's so concerned about game makers, they are usually the same people that have less friendly things to say about the business people in game. Uh, so it seems like most of the layoffs are on the business side mm. uh, and not so much on the engineering and programming. They tend to be generally safe. So Sweeney said that it would be, there were none of the layoffs pertain to core development. Well, there you go. And that's, and that's sort of like categorically what Epic and Sweeney are known for. They built the shit out of things and the Unreal Engine is, of course, that that's the baby uh, that sits in the center of this. I think the success of Fortnite has attracted a lot of people, has brought a lot of people into the Epic universe. And as a result, it's like now it's just time to kind of trim the fat, not to call them redundant, but to say like, you know, you end up with a lot of contractors, a lot of people that work in the business side and you kind of, okay, we have to cut overhead. 16%, however, that's a huge number. If EA or Activision Blizzard was cutting 16% of its staff, It'd be all over the news, right? And then you wonder what's going on at this company. So some of the things I heard, because several of my uh, friends and contacts there have been leaving over the last couple of months, you realize like, oh, this has been in the works for a while, of course. So this isn't a sudden move or a reaction or response to a recent thing. I think they've been looking at the economics. And the economics, in my mind, have everything to do with you know, Fortnite. Right? So Fortnite seems to be back in, on the up. It's sort of down a little bit in terms of momentum, and it seems to be regaining it. But, you know, it's switching its model over, right? So they're all pursuing this creator economy. And the question really, can the user-generated content that they're pushing serve as a replacement for their own microtransactions? Does the revenue that they used to make or that they currently make with microtransactions themselves, that they produce themselves and develop themselves, can they replace that in some meaningful way with user-generated content. And that's, so it's, it's a bit of a wobbly moment, right? It's a transition in economics. One of the things listeners may not appreciate if they haven't been paying a ton of attention to Fortnite is that 2023 has really been a year for Epic in terms of doubling down on this creator economy, what they have literally even branded as creator economy 2.0 and in fortnite this is really hinged around releasing the unreal engine for fortnite or the uefn which i don't think is a pronounceable acronym i have to wonder what was going on there but basically giving creators a game engine in which to build islands, basically being able to sell them assets, you know, in a kind of unity model, giving them the engine in a Roblox model. And the, but here's the thing that, that my understanding maybe doesn't square with what you're saying is that from what I have looked at that new creator 
this creator economy 2.0 is pinned to revenue share around engagement. So it's not that you're paying to play in one of these islands. It's that what Epic is interested in doing is getting new users and getting them to stay in the ecosystem by, mm -hmm. by providing this sort of, you know, their sort of quasi-metaverse, fully in-the-round play experience. But as far as I could tell, monetization still relies on microtransactions, on buying skins, buying weapons. That part hasn't really changed, and it seems like growth there comes from, is being, it, they must be planning on it coming from new forms of engagement and a bigger player base, rather than the sort of, I think, more Robloxy model where people are selling you things inside your island or you're paying to play them or things like that. Do I have that right? You're asking about the switching economics, right? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't see, it seems to me like they're still trying to sell rainbow guns. Yes. And at the end of the day, they're just trying to move more rainbow guns. And they're hoping that the new, the new this creator economy 2.0 system does that by mm -hmm. expanding the player base and mm -hmm. creating stickier engagement beyond the battle royale mode. So the, yes, so you're absolutely right. So the, you know, there's a moment where you transition from like just pure product where you sell a game for 60 bucks to like microtransactions where it's all about continued spending. And the basic math there has always been people that are in the game for a long time, have lots of friends and lots of connections to the game are going to spend more money. So the push to improve retention is always going to be a central effort. And then there's, of course, also like, how do you double your user base? Right? How do you build an ecosystem in which all these people can do all these things? And this is, in my mind, this is like page one out of games as a platform, which I think of as sort of like the third era in gaming here. But it's, you know, Fortnite is trying to become that, that, that place where you go and you can do all these different things. And one of those things is you make your own stuff. Um, making your own stuff really means that you're now more engaged, more engrossed. You're learning how to use the tools. They also subsidize that. As Sweeney indicates, like it's a lower margin business when we have creator content than just purely microtransactions. And it allows you to you know, engage people, not just by having them like make stuff and engage themselves that way, but by setting up these, this economic principle, you're also inviting a much larger group of people to come help build content for your game, right? There is across the industry this realization that yeah, you could hire a thousand cool developers to make stuff all day long, or you could have ten thousand of your players just you know fuck around and find out and make yeah. stuff. So that's, or that's, you could that's a much more rich thing. Yeah, or you could pay nothing and get a bunch of people to do that work for free on the promise mm -hmm. that it will turn into something for them, right? <laughs> well, that, no, that's that's exactly it. It's like they 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 look at it and say like, well, you know, how do we? You're still curating. You still have to, of course, uh, look at branding. You still have moderate, to moderate, yeah, moderate all the stuff and make sure that it's not, uh, you know, a bunch of nonsense. But at the end of the day, it's like people, at least in my research, I've always found it's like players get. I mean, you just described the Renaissance Fair, you know. Like at first, you buy the capelet, but eventually, you get to the place where you're like building your, like you're embroidering your own costumes that you made yourself, right? And so that 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 idea of 
making your own things and showing the world in that context what you've created and sharing it and perhaps benefit profiting from it. But that's, I think, a very natural sort of transition. And I think the user base for Fortnite, they want to make their own things. They want to show their own coolness in that context. And that's what they're allowed to do. But that transition, that switch in economics means that they're now going through this kind of wobbly time and they have to make cutbacks as a result. That's, yeah, that's at least a narrative. Yeah, I'm not sure I would characterize it as... I'm always cautious to characterize economic transitions as natural. But it does seem to... Re it reveals, I think, to me, if we read it against the grain, something about the inherent strain in the gas model, which is that this actually does not produce endless growth, right? So now, oh, we thought microtransactions were the thing, this game prints money, yada, yada, yada. And there's a real threshold. Even with a huge player base, it can't produce endless growth. And so now we're going to pivot again where are we going to get all this content? We're going to get it from the players. We'll revenue share with the best of them. I think there's no escaping the thing that you and I know, which is that 90% of this content will wash out. The top 10% will make bank, right? This is, this is how all of these models work. Though I am alleviated. I do think that Epic has a better model going on than, than something like what I see in Roblox. It, it did seem more sane to me, at least at the outset. I'm, I'm intrigued to see how they continue to grow this. I have, here's the, um, the part. So I, I'm with you on a lot of this, but I, I wouldn't call the transition in economics natural. I think it's a natural progression of user behavior, right? As you, I mean, you, if you ever worked in like, a, like a corporate setting, as people find their way in their job and stay in their like particular positions, like you start to see them develop their cubicles and they can like these little, like little square structures with like all this like intimate pictures of theirs or their you know their favorite cat stuff or whatever and so it's like people customize and personalize their space and i think they do the same thing in cubicles at work as they do in Fortnite. and i think that, so that's so that's a natural progression like the economics around it i think those are artificial to some degree of course what's where you know, all of that makes sense for epic where epic is having a harder time more broadly is that they're trying to compete it's basically a four-front war that they're waging here. They are competing with Apple, they're competing with Unity, they're competing with Roblox, and they're competing with Valve all at the same time. I think that that's a really tough thing to do. Like if they were to just take on Valve and say, you know what, we're going to build the Epic Game Store, we're going to have lower margins, we're going to subsidize new content creators, whatever, all that stuff. That could be one thing. If they were to compete with Roblox, it's like, okay, you know, we want to be, when they cycle out of Roblox, they come here, they play Fortnite instead. That could all make sense. But if you do all four of them at once, like you have to have such a bag of money. I don't know if that's feasible. So I think that's where the cuts really come from. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Epic has spread itself really thin. I was very amused that on the page at Epic Games where they posted Tim Sweeney's email, at the end there's an FAQ. And if you scroll all the way down, the last question is, what about Project Liberty? And <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, Project Liberty. Remember that? Remember fighting against the monopolist of the Apple store, right? And the response is, we've been taking steps to reduce our legal expenses, but are continuing to fight against Apple and Google distribution monopolies and taxes so the metaverse can thrive and bring opportunity to Epic and all other developers. And I think that is some phenomenal code for we bled out on lawyers and got almost nothing for it. Uh, that's, that's too cynical. That, but, that's too cynical <laughs> yeah that's just i mean look it's 
bled out a lawyer, that seems a little, that's, that, I don't think that that's entirely good. Because even, you could do the math on these things, right? But so they probably spent a few hundred million on that. But they make $5 billion a year. So I don't think that that threatens their livelihood. I just think that they are not making the progress that they want. Like, I mean, it's clear that Apple has a position that's incredibly dominant and even legally hard to argue. I think they've, as a maverick firm, they've taken a bunch of shots at Apple and they've been struck down. You know, Epic has not been winning this. Uh, when you go to the lawsuits, like the, Apple wins nine out of 10 points, uh, according to the judge. So in many ways, like they, they tried and didn't really succeed. I think that, so they're going to just deprioritize it. I don't think that they lost their, their business over it. But, you know, it's interesting to see how like strong these platforms are. I think that that's really Apple and Google are really truly distribution monopolies. It's not meaningful for Epic to continue to fight the weights that yes. on their own anymore. Yes, that's, that. yeah, that's, that's sort of what I mean is that there was a tremendous investment in mm-hmm. the legal costs related to these lawsuits. And they did, they have changed the game and the narrative uh, that, that folks have, right? It's an excellent example. I'm getting excited to read the chapter in Cory Doctor and Rebecca Giblin's uh, Choke Point Capitalism dedicated to the Epic versus Apple fight and Apple's monopolistic control over the app economy. But where is this? Where is this, <clears throat> uh, this chapter? That is in the book Choke Point Capitalism. Okay. You should check it out. It's a good read. I have, I, I swapped out some of the reading of my mobile gaming week this year in game economies and I put in that chapter. Okay. To the internet. To the internet. Yeah. Thumbs up, Cory Doctorow. So my last, you know, my closing statements on this will basically be the one thing I did like seeing out of the unfortunate situation, these layoffs is that Apple is that Epic does appear to be treating its employees pretty respectfully. They're getting six months severance, six months healthcare. That is a very strong package from what I can tell. I was pleased to see it. I was pleased to see that possibly set as a standard for what these kinds of massive layoffs should look like. I think that part of the reason there was some shock when this came out around social media, but it's sort of blown over and I think hasn't turned into a rage machine, I think in part because, as you said, this is largely hitting business employees. And then the other part being that if you got to do these layoffs, I think this is a, you know, within this economic structure, a pretty fair way to do them. I'm glad you approve. I'm sure Tim is delighted. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, it's, I'm it's, it's, it's oh, but it's true. It's, it's like once you once you start cutting people, like you you have at, at least at that scale. I mean, I've heard some more drama on the back end. You, know, you have that number of people being let go at the same time. Like there's going to be mistakes, and so you hear about those too. It's like, yeah, this person found out this shitty way, and it, that happens too. But you should always err on the side of caution and always like overcompensate on the way out. I think, unless it's like an individual issue. But this is a. I think it's really interesting to see how we have two engine companies within a week of each other having a huge, you know, sort of these negative announcements, right? At first, it's like the runtime fees with Unity and that whole shit show. And now there's Epic with these layoffs. You're kind of like, okay, so the engine business is not doing well. Like, what's going on? Yeah, everyone, there's a lot of hunger for a new model, right? The the Mm -hmm. pump as currently designed is running dry. 
at least in terms of the way that these technologies are supposed to prop up shareholder value. I also know in the I also know Yost that you've been doing some work on what a post FIFA electronic arts looks like. This has been bubbling up in the news for the past few weeks. Could you give us a little more context on this? Right. Let's see. So the largest sports video game publisher, Electronic Arts, had ended its 30-year partnership with FIFA last year in May, which is a bit of a shock, right? So Electronic Arts is the, I guess, second largest independent game maker in North America still until the Activision Blizzard acquisition is finalized, of course. This is where they make a lot of money. The market cap for an an EA is something around $35 billion, which is roughly the same, a little bit higher than, say, Epic Games, uh, but it's uh, sort of half of Activision Blizzard. So it's a large publisher that depends for a large part on its sports, video games, and within that category, FIFA is a huge part. And so now that franchise uh, uh, is over. And they did so very purely because... FIFA was, God knows what's going on with FIFA, which is just a like, wretched hive of scum and villainy and corruption. <laughs> I mean, literally. And so they end up ending, you know, asking for double what they were getting from EA. And EA said, yeah, nothing, right? So they wanted, really? they, were, they were getting $150 million a year as a license fee, give or take. And they were saying, yeah, but we want double this. So we're going to, uh, and EA said, no, thanks. And that leaves EA for a really interesting creative problem because now you sit with the issue like how do you keep players interested how do you like how do you keep shareholders uh, you know to believe in you still even if you lose this mega franchise because fifa is massive right i mean the the soccer federation is i mean this appeals to billions of people worldwide yeah my my under my understanding was that this game mints money and that Mm -hmm. you couldn't quite put a price tag on it i mean apparently you can you totally can. <laughs> so, so FIFA, uh, like I said, was making 150 of it, but so it generates money for EA to the tune of like 1.6 billion dollars uh, from Ultimate Team alone, right? So the FIFA Ugh. franchise in 2021 and 2022 was making 2.5 and 2.6 billion dollars a year. You know, 50, 60 percent of that is Ultimate Team alone. Then they have digital sales and downloads, and then of course physical and mobile. The Jeez. so that's that is a that is roughly half of everything, right? So that's the it's a behemoth, thing. yeah. That's mega, so, you know. And this doesn't include NFL Madden, mind you, and any of the other games that they do. So it's a significant moment in EA's history to say, well, what are you going to do next? Now, there's a history with like how EA became this dominant sports video game maker. They competed head to head with Take Two over this. They competed with Sony. They really like carve this out and one of your favorites John Riccatello at one point just said let's just buy the whole thing and they commit <laughs> like a seven year license for a hundred million bucks a year just to like buy everybody out and shut down the whole conversation because it was basically a pricing war and that's if you have to commit a large fee to the licensor up front it's very hard to then make your money back if everybody's competing on price right you just end up selling for cheaper then they figured out ultimate team which is this amazing upsell that's people seem to like, you know, opening these card packs and putting together your dream team. So the economics made a lot of sense, but they've become, in a sense, also very dependent on it. And now the question is, can they cross the gap? Can they 
ensure continuity for players and shareholders. And that's an so, interesting one. So go ahead. That that leads to the next obvious question, which what do you, what is the plan? What do you see EA's options are here? Well, so I started off pretty skeptical at first, saying like, oh God, oh, look, it's just a bunch of spreadsheets being mushed together in the hope of getting more dollars out of it. <laughs> what they've managed to do, I think, is actually quite remarkable. So the so the, the catchphrase is always this, like, how do you innovate without alienating your most loyal players? You How do you deviate? And you can't really afford a lot of freedom if somebody else owns the license. So for the players, for instance, that means um, FIFA is very, very strict about what it wants in the game and what it doesn't want in the game. So to to placate the player base, what they've done is to basically go to all the other leagues and start adding a huge amount of other things into it that you couldn't do. So, for instance, they've been aggregating volumetric data. So they have all these cameras around stadiums, and it's and they've recorded like whatever two hundred of these like high profile matches. Take really high definition images of like these star players. Taking, making goals and doing their little celebrations afterwards. And so the resolution and the fidelity of that of those individual places is much higher in the game, which is really like the celebrations is one of those. It's sort of like the, the cool hats in Fortnite or whatever, like the, the custom items in uh, like Counter-Strike. Like that's a big piece of that vernacular in that context. So they've basically leaned into making that even more rich or whatever enriching that for the player base and more realistic and i think that that's really interesting right this is sort of like you know we, we go deeper so they aggregate all this data and i think at some point the technology allows them to do things that fifa doesn't want that fifa doesn't really want to you know allow into the game and i think in some ways they've unleashed some of the technology here to make up the difference and then mm-hmm. they've also you know expanded their addressable audience so they're really into like crossplay. So they have all these different, I mean, usually you couldn't really play uh, most of their game modes across different devices. Now you can. And so now they're trying to address people on mobile PC console. And I think that that's a really good way to build some network effects that they didn't have previously. So I think they're placating the players in that way. And then for the shareholders, uh, it's really about, uh, you know, how do you make more money? It's like, well, they can now, for instance, do direct partnerships where FIFA, of course, is sponsored by Coca-Cola. And Adidas or Adidas, EA probably gets some money off that, used to get some money off that, but more likely they get a lot more money now that they can go direct and they go and they already announced a partnership with Nike and PepsiCo, right? And so now you're going to start seeing their brands in uh, the EA game. And so I think that that's a revenue model that they didn't have previously, right? They just because of the sponsorship deal or the franchise deal with FIFA. So I think they're keeping people happy. And I think it's a, a creative way to transition from where they were into like a non-FIFA or like life behind, after FIFA uh, soccer game. What do we think the tentpole game for EA becomes then? Is it Madden? No, no, no. It's going to stay this one. I'm pretty sure that this one. I feel that the... So, I mean, the math... You have to... Wait. Like Madden, I, I, want to be, I want to be nice to the Americans... And say, of course, American football is so important. But, you know, outside the U.S., nobody watches that. I, uh, it's just unfortunately so. And so for a sports video game maker, like, why wouldn't they go and lean on the biggest sport out there? Like, they haven't really figured out cricket, which is really up there in the same echelon. But soccer, really proper football, is 
the biggest sport out there that everybody can kind of agree on. So I think as long as that has momentum, which it does, not just, you know, the World Cups like increase in value. I mean, it becomes, it's the equivalent of the Olympic Games. It's the biggest, one of the biggest sports events. It also has a push into like women's soccer. There's all these other leagues that are coming up across the US in Europe. The whole system is changing. They play an incredibly important touch point for young audiences to connect with the sport and with the celebrities in that sport. So I think that they're, they're totally fine. They just need to maintain you know, rapid innovation and, you know, be very creative about how they generate revenue. But as long as they do that well and stay true to the game, I think that they have a future. Wait a minute. I feel like I zoned out for 30 seconds and then got completely confused. I thought FIFA was over. No, FIFA's how still are, around. I know that FIFA, soccer FIFA still exists, but the FIFA games out of EA are over. So how are they still making soccer games? They just make it without saying FIFA. They just change, swap out what it says in the bar. So they can't, but they can't access any of the players. Oh, no, they, they go direct. See, like FIFA oh. is just, FIFA is just, you see, FIFA doesn't own all the players. The players are owned by the clubs and the leagues. No, it's a good, it's a fair question because like. Okay, okay, because I was like, wait, did I miss something? So it's just, they're just losing the FIFA brand, which isn't nothing. And they are going to have to multiply across all of these deals with each of the individual clubs. That's a lot more time consuming and labor intensive, but... I, th- I think that creates more value, to be honest, right? So, so just to give you an idea. So they have licenses with the Bundesliga, largest German soccer league, Champions League, the Barclays Women's Super League, uh, D1 Arkema, Arkema, that's the French uh, Women's Soccer League, English Premier League, La Liga which literally is called La Liga EA Sports as of this year. So they do MLS, Major League Soccer, and a whole bunch of others. And then they have also teams like Chelsea, uh, PSG, uh, New York City FC, Manchester City, and so on, uh, AC Milan, Inter Milan, Juventus, all of these major teams, all these major leagues. And so they just go direct. And then FIFA can go FIFA itself, right? It's just like take your corruption and go sit somewhere else. And, And so they do these direct deals, which I think, is more work, but they capture more value on a, on a per deal basis. And now that they have so many, it's like, where would you go? I mean, it really raises the negotiating power because if you are uh, the Belgian soccer league, really, you're not going to go to EA. Like, what, whatever EA offers you at this point, you're going to take because that's the only game in town, right? So I think it's a really, it was a necessary transition. If you look also at the audience that plays this game, it's like, yeah, these are young people. They're not really into the level of corruption that FIFA has on offer. Um, so in many ways, it's like it was also time to shed that kind of partnership. It's, it's hurting you as a, as a game maker. So it's a really interesting sort of back and forth between innovation, partnerships, franchises, and alienation. I think that they've done a good job so far, you know, but the, the market will prove it out. Players will let you know if they, if they care about this new game. Fascinating. And what is FIFA going to do with itself? They say that they are talking to other companies, but whatever, man. It's like the thing is no, but it's like EA has dedicated some of its resources and they built Frostbite, their own private engine, to like have yeah. you know this soccer game like work really well. So you can probably get some other company to build something like it, but it's never going to be in the same level of dedication after. No, EA's I mean, yeah, the cumulative data that EA has is is unbeatable. Yeah, the customization they have is is phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's not it's obviously not plausible that some other company could just come in 
and get you the same game feel. No, absolutely. But so it's FIFA, I think, is the big loser here. I was skeptical at first. I thought it would be a bad deal overall. But seeing what they have, I'm usually pretty skeptical of EA2 for that matter. But I think that they really transitioned well here. You know, now it's just like where they can, where EA can lose points is if they go a little too hard on the monetization, which they historically tend to do. Uh, this is, you know, team loot box lives here. So, so that's one. But so if they can kind of pace themselves and just really build value for the player base during this like couple of years of transitioning, I think that that would be very valuable. And FIFA, yeah, good luck getting 150 million or 180 million out of some other publisher to build this for you while you kind of you know because you have to remember 180 is one of the largest chunks of money for fifa right i can give you the numbers real quick but it's the, the moment when uh, you start to think of all this like licensing money that comes around for, for a place like fifa is interesting so they have an income of 180 million from licensing in 2021 and then you know they have tv broadcasting is 123 million <laughs> their marketing deals are 130 million. so it's like like yeah. licensing is by far the biggest one of these other categories so it's just like so they just shot themselves in the foot it's like it's, it's an own goal that's right FIFA <laughs> scored an own goal that's what i would say well turning from a game that just came out to one being eagerly awaited assassin's creed mirage will be hitting stores tomorrow october 5th and of a variety of licensing deals that's hooked up to help spread the word and the hype about this game is this tie-in with a haptic shirt released by a company called Owu. I'm interested in these dynamics both technologically and sort of as part of a set of cultural appeals about what gamers quote-unquote want in their play and of course the actual lived experience of having to put these things on to wear them to use them does this actually enhance gameplay. And to get a little more insight on this, I turned to my close colleague and friend, David Parisi, currently a professor at the College of Charleston, who is an expert in the cultural history of haptics. Let's uh, listen in on that interview. As many of you know, Assassin's Creed Mirage is going to be released Thursday, October 5th. A promise of return to the game's action-adventure parkour roots as players get to traverse the city of Baghdad. This game has been very hyped by the game's press and is coming along with one very special partnership with the haptics gaming company Owu, which is producing a custom haptic vest to enable players to, quote, hashtag feel the assassin and maybe the assassination if Owu's promises hold true. Now, most of the game's coverage of this partnership has been pretty much just a regurgitation of press release talking points about how the Owu is going to bring the sensations of Assassin's Creed to life. As covered on PC Games N, they write, quote, slip into the Owu haptic gaming system vest and you'll actually feel every slash, stab, and smack as you play. Now, because this is unboxing and we like to get under the hood on the intersection of play and profit, bringing history, culture, and economics into conversation, I'm here with Dave Parisi, a professor of emerging media at the College of Charleston. Dave is a specialist in the history of haptics. He's the author of The Archaeology of Touch, Interfacing with Haptics from Electricity to Computing. And he's going to talk to us today about whether this vest is the real deal and the fantasies that are bound up in our fixation on feeling digital experiences. Hello, Dave. 
Hello, Lane. Happy to, happy to have you on today. Thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me. So first, Dave, I'm wondering if you could just give a little bit of an introduction for our listeners to this term haptics first. Like, what does it mean? What's it refer to? And then how is it part of the game industry? Yeah. Uh, so haptics is the science and technology of communication through touch. The modern usage dates back to the 1890s, originates in um, experimental psychology labs uh, in Germany. It's more modern usage. Um, it, it rises in the 1970s, 1980s to describe computer-based haptics, to describe communication through touch using computer interfaces, using computer displays. So this is basically a way of layering touch onto computer graphics and computer sound with this third channel of communication through touch designated by this word haptics. In games, the use goes back arguably to the late 1800s, early 1900s, but we can think of it more conventionally as involving things like haptic vests, um, things like the dual sense or sorry, dual shock controller for the PlayStation uh, or J1997, any sort of rumble, vibration sensation that you would have felt in an arcade game. And in rare, very rare instances, shocking players with a device like the OO vest. Uh, so yeah, broad range of uses, um, all generally framed in this language of when it comes to games, in this language of realism, right? You're gonna get this fidelity, very similar to visual fidelity. You're gonna get this fidelity to non-mediated touch through this technology. So you already spoke a bit about where the OWU fits into this. What is this device, right? You know, one of the reasons this device seems like such a big deal is because of this partnership with Assassin's Creed Mirage. I'm not sure we've seen a haptics company like this tied to major AAA release. So what is this device, first of all? How does it work? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the reasons that this device in particular caught my eye, uh, even before the partnership with Assassin's Creed, is because it's different from other devices, um, other vests that have been released in the, in the past, because it uses electricity rather than vibration as its stimulus mechanism. So if we go back to 2007, 2008, there was a device called the Third Space Vest, uh, which actually work through little pockets of air that press against your torso. Um, there are a few other devices, a few other vests that work through vibration actuators positioned around your torso. I'm thinking of the B Haptics um, vest that's it's, it's currently in production. Um, again, a few others like this that, that work through vibration. Um, what's distinct about the OAU shirt is that it uses electricity. The Tesla suit, no affiliation to Elon Musk, Tesla Motors, is another device that that uses electricity to stimulate, um, or to, sorry, to simulate sensations in VR. But the Tesla suit costs around $10,000 US. So it's of a different order, right? Like yeah. this is intended for a mass market release. The founder edition was sold for I think, yeah. uh, around 500 pounds, um, $600. So that's what I think these two things in conjunction, right? This stimulus mechanism using uh, these little electrical pulses to simulate touch sensations, uh, number one. And then number two, the fact that, as you pointed out, this is an attempted like massification, right? This device is intended for uh, mass consumption. You're absolutely right that um, the partnership with Assassin's Creed really sets it apart from other haptics releases. In the last five years, we've seen, I think it, it, it's fair to say an unprecedented 
wave of consumer-oriented haptics devices released, this is the probably the one with the most a high-profile um, partnership with the major game franchise. So absolutely dead on there. From your perspective, what is so distinctive about the difference between vibration versus electricity? So this is there's sort of a controversy that emerges. Uh, haptic communication, the use of uh, touch to send messages, you know, goes back several decades. In the 1950s, they're trying to pioneer this, uh, the use of this technology for military communication. And uh, in the 1960s, there's a controversy about uh, preferred stimulus mechanism. Um, you have the majority of people who are working on this research prefer um, vibration communication, and then there's a small minority that advocates for electrical stimulation. Um, eventually vibration, or actually very quickly, vibration wins out um, because it's a little bit simpler. Um, it doesn't fatigue the skin. You don't run the, dam the risk of damaging the skin. Um, you don't run the risk of inflicting pain. It's mm. a little bit easier to control. It's less precise in some ways. The ramp up for vibration takes longer. Um, whereas electrical pulses are fire off much quicker. Um, so there are definitely some advantages for electrical stimulation, but that risk of pain and that risk of nerve fatigue was a major reason that vibration won out over, over electrical stimulation. We see that in everything today from game controllers to the vibration alert, um, vibration feedback for your smartphones. Yeah, you know, what's distinct here is just the fact that it's using electricity, which is a much sharper and, and again, like a much, in some cases, more painful um, sensation. So why would we see a implementation of this? It almost sounds like you're saying more dangerous form of haptic feedback. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I think what OAO is going for um, is product differentiation. There are, I think, at least three or four haptic vests on the market or about to come on the market that use vibration as their stimulus mechanism. So this allows a startup company to stand out from that field a little bit. I mean, also the experience of vibration versus electrical stimulation is qualitatively a different experience, right? So it allows them to paint with a different palette, if you will. It gives them a different range of sensations that they can, they can use to bring different feelings to video games. Have you felt both vibration and electrical stim? Yeah, I felt vibration a lot more frequently, but there's this there's this reaction tester game. It's like a 20 or $30 sort of novelty game that delivers electric shock. And I've played with that a bunch. I've also tried the, had the, the chance to try the Tesla suit in about a 45 minute or an hour long demo. So I had it localized to the hand with this reaction tester game um, and also electrical pings around my body with, with the Tesla suit. It, with the Tesla suit um, and also with the OWA vest, you can calibrate the intensity of the stimulation uh, of the electrical current. On the low setting, it's barely noticeable, like a little bit of uh, a little bit of a buzz. On the highest intensity, it is really painful. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my, my impulse just because I want the full experience, my impulse with the Tesla suit was to turn the dial up to 11 and it hurts. And there was, in my experience, there was a little bit of a dermal after image. Hmm. You know, I tested this thing in the morning. I was lying in my hotel bed at night and I could sort of feel this over tingling in my nerves from the, from being just shocked repeatedly um, by this vest. Even just for like 45 minutes. 
Yeah, and I don't know if it was kind of a phantom, like it was all in my brain, or if there was some sort of leftover latent sensation. It's really hard to tell. Um, but, you know, going back to historical literature, this is definitely one of the concerns that proponents of vibration communication express. They said, like, there's, you don't risk this kind of nerve burn-in to use sort of a visual metaphor. It's not there with vibration. Okay, we have this, this kind of whole history of haptics that is coming to bear around this device, this this Assassin's Creed Mirage haptics vest, right? And it's promising this never-before-felt experience, right? That's a lot of the hype around it. How do we evaluate a statement like that for this kind of product? Yeah, that never-before-felt is really fantastic because it opens up a whole set of questions. Um, felt by whom, right, is one question. <laughs> it conjures this idea of kind of a cultural sensorium, of like a cultural memory of touch. And this is where I think there may be onto a little something here. In our cultural memory, we've definitely felt this before. So there's a long and forgotten history of using electricity for pleasurable stimulation that continues in the BDSM community with electrostimulation devices today. But, you know, if we're going back, even in the history of games, there were electric shock arcade games in pretty wide circulation, uh, both in Europe and in the U.S. Uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And then we sort of got this taboo around electrical stimulation, largely because of its association with electroconvulsive therapy, which arises in the 1930s. Oh, fascinating. Um, so we get this sort of fear of electric shock and specifically a fear of therapeutic electric shock. Then in the 1970s, we get the emergence of TENS units, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation units, uh, mainly used for pain relief rather than pain infliction, as is the case with the uh, OWA vest and the Tesla suit. But in our cultural memory, this is not necessarily unprecedented. In terms of the specific sensations that the vest or that the shirt is transmitting, I'm not sure yet, right? I haven't felt it. And I think that's part of what um, they're playing on here is maybe some of our cultural amnesia and then some of our, some of this lack of personal experience with, with electrical stimulation. And I think one thing that haptics devices in general and this device in particular really play on is this novelty effect, right? The sense that what you're feeling is new, it is unprecedented. And the question that I think all haptics devices have to grapple with is how long does that novelty effect last? Like how long do you use this thing before you get bored of it? And it's just not worth the hassle. And one thing that gets obscured with the narratives around these devices, oh, you're gonna put the shirt on and then instantly you're gonna be transported into the world of Assassin's Creed and you can feel what it's like to be stabbed whatever <laughs> yeah living uh, the dream right like <laughs> living the dream right who wouldn't want that right? why is this a desirable vision in the first place but we can put that, as, that question aside for one quick second um, and just sort of get uh, think about the process of putting this shirt on and configuring it and the user manual is wild on this front there's a whole set of protocols a whole set guidelines um, for properly configuring this device that make it seem really just daunting. Um, okay, take me through this. Give me, yeah, we're sitting down on our sofa. We're ready to blow some Assassin's Creed Mirage. I'm putting on my haptic vest. What does this involve for me? Yeah, and this is specific to electrical simulation, bare skin. So make sure that the gel pads are always in contact with your bare skin. 
if necessary, move or remove your bra. And this is just from their, you know, from their little user manual. And the uh, gel pads are these are these kind of rectangular or square sensors that are on the vest, right? And they they're not movable. They're in the same place. Uh, yeah, like, sorry. And, uh, and, yeah, and there are twenty of these things on the front and back of uh, of the device. Of the this what they're calling the skin not movable bare skin if you use chains or necklaces put them over the oil skin make sure they are not in contact <laughs> with the electrodes you know do not taunt happy fun ball remove <laughs> your body piercings especially if they are located on the electrode application yeah. I mean, that, that's just putting the thing on right and making sure that it's in proper contact with the skin then we have this configuration guide that is done through the app. So you pair the vest up uh, with an app on your phone and you configure each electrode individually, uh, basically setting your pain or sensation threshold tolerance. Um, so if you want to think of this, the analogy that this com that comes to mind is the, you know, the brightness adjustment. When you sit down to play games, you're playing a survival horror game and you want it to be barely visible, but not too visible. This is that same sort of calibration process, but for each pair of electrodes, right? So you've got to go through this, oh, is that sensation strong enough or is it too strong? I want it to be strong enough to feel, but not too strong that it hurts me. That's a really sort of laborious process. And I think that's a challenge that each one of these, each one of these vests has faced. Using these things, we tend to obscure the materiality of these devices and they can be really uncomfortable. They can be really fatiguing. They can be really hot just in routine use. How long do you think it's really viable to wear a device like this where you're just getting constantly uh, poked, pressured, stimmed, you know, just be based on your movements through this virtual world? I think it's one of the things that you have to, as a player or as a user of this thing, you have to police for, you have to basically try to see if your nerves are getting overstimulated or fatigued. I mean, again, like if you look back at the, the military, uh, the military communication discussion around electric stimulation, that was front of their mind was like how much use of this system is going to be too much use for soldiers, right? For soldiers who are disciplined and trained, trained to yeah. like receive complex, uh, receive and decode complex signals. And I think, you know, it's a similar question to like the ergonomics of VR, right? Like how long do you want to sit in a headset for? Yeah, this has been one of my sort of talking points about VR is sitting with a bucket on your head for hours is just not that fun. <laughs> and, it, and it denies the whole rest of your life. You can't eat, you can't drink, you can't go to the bathroom. You know, the, there's a material space in which play happens. You sent me the manual and I was really so intrigued by the kinds of sensation that these devices normalize, right? Or that they, I guess, in some ways are designed to produce. And it was just this whole grid of axe, dagger, flail, machine gun, shotgun, handgun, hug. And, and I was just like, what's happening? You know, all sensations are made of micro sensations. A gunshot wound is an entry wound, an exit wound, and bleeding. This does feel fucked up. And I'm not one to get hyperbolic about games and gun culture, but the weird lack of awareness that how many of our children have been killed? I'm really curious about the extent to which it's designed for these kinds of experiences. And if that really is what we want. There's a fantasy of haptic realism 
what I've started to call the fantasy of the techno haptic real, right? That these devices in some way, you know, provide access to, to realistic sensations. Um, and I think there's two elements of this, right? The first element is uh, how close is the sensation they're providing to that reference sensation, right? So I'm looking, I think we're probably looking at the same spot in the manual. There's a shot with exit, right? We've got yeah. impact shots, exit and bleeding. And from, from an effects design perspective, this is kind of a cool challenge, right? Like how do you approximate this thing that you've never experienced yourself? Yeah, I can right? imagine engineers really geeking out uh, the technological problem, right? How do I solve a, how do I solve this as a software and hardware engineering issue? As a graphical design problem too, right? um, in those little screenshots from the app, how do I represent this process that's occurring on your body? How do I represent it visually by like lighting up the electrode or highlighting the electrode, right? Now you're seeing like you as the, as the player are seeing visually what's happening to your body, right? It's really entering you into this relationship uh, with this whole nexus of technologized sensations. So that's the one side of it, right? This question of this material question of how close that simulated sensation gets you to a sensation that hopefully you'll never experience, right? Like hopefully yeah. you'll never get shot and say, oh, wow, the, uh, the, oh, wow, vest didn't really prepare me for this, right? <laughs> it's way really worse. Then you have that second part, which is why is this the fantasy that this technology is emerging through? Why is like hug or this really affective, like warm interpersonal exchange why is that like only one of 18 on the list? Why is that sort of an afterthought? What does that tell us about the violent fantasies that envelop game culture and that inform and motivate the commercialization of haptics technologies in this context? You know, Dave, I know that as historians, we don't like to be asked to predict the future, but you know, I'm wondering what your thoughts are going to be for the reception of the o the owu the u u oh man it's a bad brand name i'm just gonna say that first of all like <laughs> we can sort of hit this from two different angles right what's the fate of this one device in particular yeah um, what's the fate of this product category more generally and i think i'm on the question of this one device in particular the calibration thing makes this a heavy lift for me, right? And it's, you know, again, as someone who's tried a few of these devices, I wore the um, Tesla suit for much longer than I think most people get to in like a showroom demo. That's a really heavy device. So I was like a puddle of sweat at the end of the 45 minutes, just trapping my bodily fluids inside this device for 45 minutes is not necessarily an experience. I should say like, this is a much light, lighter weight device um, from all the representations and depictions. But you know, still you have this challenge of sitting down for a gaming session and, and like we just talked about with VR, sitting down for a gaming session and now having to like suit up into this thing that, you know, you get up to get a snack and you're still wearing it. How long <laughs> are you going to, you know, Assassin's Creed is a game that people tend to play for hours and hours on yeah. end. Are you going to want to get shocked for all those hours? So is this necessarily like the best game to launch this thing with? Uh, so like if you're going to go all in on a promotion, I'm sort of wondering about the benefit that 
Assassin's Creed Mirage gets from a $500 peripheral add-on versus maybe the lift that a lesser known franchise would, is this a synergistic partnership? Is this a partnership that's gonna benefit this haptic startup more than it's gonna benefit an established game franchise? I am sort of skeptical that this thing will be around in five years or three years. The product category more generally, like haptic vests, I'm similarly skeptical. You know, it's in a lot of ways tied to the fate of VR. This is not, this release is not tied to a VR game, um, but it is compatible with other VR games. And uh, this recent wave of Hepic Vest release has coincided with a lot of investment in VR technologies more generally. Now that that investment has started to fall off with this collapse, the bursting of the, the metaverse bubble, how much is that uh, investment money going to gonna fade away? So. Again, I'm skeptical that these sorts of very robust, fairly expensive peripherals are going to have a ton of staying power. You know, we've seen Endure is controller-based haptics. First, the DualShock and then the DualSense upgrade on that technology with the PS5, which doesn't really require you to purchase any special hardware. It's just sort of built in. It's an expected part of a game experience that might limit the immersiveness, right? You're not going to feel what it's like to be stabbed um, with a <laughs> DualSense controller, um, but you also don't have to like put on a $500 shirt and go onto your phone and individually calibrate electrical sensations. Right? Amazing. Yeah. I think I'm going to punt on this purchase. This will not be on my Christmas list. Well, thank you so much for that fantastic conversation, all of that insight. As a reminder, Dave Parisi's book, The Archaeology of Touch, can be bought at all of your local independent bookstores. It's a great guide to the longer history of haptics. And Dave, how can people follow you, take an interest in your work? Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Dave Parisi, whatever is left of Twitter's ruins right now uh, check out my book frequently on podcasts all over the interwebs so yeah. all right awesome thank you so much dave thank you appreciate it well let me start by saying i, I want one i want a vest <laughs> although nominally like if it has sleeves it should really be a cardigan i think so, but I don't think that it has the same marketing. Approach. You, you want to feel it all the way to the wrist. I understand. You yeah, know? I want to give me the full assassination experience. I think it's fascinating. You know, this this need for a feedback loop is ever present. I think that that's you know what we do with phones. I think as David explains it, but it's the you. But fascinating. Like, why would you start here in the punching, stabby kind of category? You know, <laughs> it seems like, and 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 he explains it, but I've. I feel that that's, you know, I wonder if that's a function of, is that what gamers want? Or is that the image that these accessory companies that make these kind of vests, is that the image that they have of gamers? That's what's really what's going on here. I really suspect it's the latter, right? They think that feeling the game is supposed to be this this experience of the excitement, the violence, the, the risk right? That those are the embodied feelings that these devices claim to be able to amplify. Yeah, it's, and then there's the more dystopian version of all this where you say, you know, are we getting a little bit too far into pretending we're alive? Isn't this like how many steps before I'm just plugging into the back of my spine, you know, some kind of, you know, matrix looking contraption? Because what's, the, is it really an enhancement? Is, does it, 
it feels like a novelty. But if this were a mainstream, if this was like a common device or experience, like what kind of society would have that as a normalized thing? Like that could occur. It feels like I'm not sure I want to hurry towards that future per se. Like, do they come in child sized? Can I put it on my? <laughs> do they have child sized haptic vests? Like what is that going to be about? Yeah, it's all pretty grim though. One of the points of satisfaction here is that this stuff, by and large, doesn't do phenomenally well on the market. I mean, certainly we'll see when this comes out, but I think to Dave's point that this stuff really gets stuck in the novelty zone and it, it struggles to get beyond that. I think precisely for these kind of material problems is that you can't make, this thing is never going to be a t-shirt. We are ages away from that technology ever existing, even if it ever needs to. And I just don't think there's enough you know, this is one of those things where the market kind of weirdly protects you. I just don't think there's the base that wants this kind of experience at the cost of what it requires to set up, to put on, to experience. I think this will remain a sort of high-end novelty niche item. I think mainstreaming is a continues to be a really tall order for this type of technology. Interesting. Yeah, I'm reminded of that little platform I saw at CES a few years ago when VR was still the hot thing and some dude with the goggles on and some like giant plastic toy play where a tactical commando man. And then, you know, on this little round trampoline that was, it's like a treadmill type deal where you could run in different directions and then your character would kind of do the same. It's like, is that already necessary? It just, it feels like such, you know, an exaggeration of stuff that you could do much more easily with less cost and development. Or I think it misunderstands what people want out of play, right? They want mm -hmm. ease, seamlessness. You don't actually want to be physically experiencing running around to play Call of Duty or Halo, right? No, no, That's no, no. exhausting, <laughs> right? That's not the fun of it. And I've always made a strong domestic argument that these kinds of technologies really misunderstand the spaces that people play in. We're just not in a world where everyone's got a den in a basement completely free from the clutter of kids with tons of available space and free time to be able to implement the, these sorts of devices. I learned a ton from listening to Dave, you know, the mm -hmm. history between vibration versus electrical ping, uh, totally fascinating stuff. And I hope we'll be able to have him on again. Let's do some pones and ounce. Yost, this season, this episode, I don't know if it what I have is a pwn or an own. Okay, I am. Well, why, uh, why don't you let me decide? Unclear. Can I let you decide? Yes. All right. I will mansplain what you say back to you. Okay. Fantastic. Just what I always dreamed of. Exactly why I started this podcast. So there was reporting yesterday that. I don't know if you saw this on social media, you, probably not because you were in transit, but Trump's lawyer showed up to his fraud trial with a Asus gamer laptop. Uh -huh. There was a the photo of Trump at the defendant stand went around and then somebody on the internet was like, that's a gamer lap. And, and when it the female attorney opened it, it glowed blue on the back panel and it's like why are we there was it was it's neither here nor there in some senses but it's a kind of phenomenal question of like why 
do you have a gamer laptop at this very significant trial? This thing that is going through a color... You can see it on Fox News going through its color cycle. It just seemed... Also, what are you doing as a lawyer that you need a laptop of this capacity? You're just looking at... How many PDFs could you possibly have open? That's a really good question. So I, I don't, I haven't seen this particular instance, but I do have a dentist who believes in gamer hardware too. And his argument is I need resolution. I need high resolution screens and like a, a stock like Dell doesn't cut it. I need to have Alienware or some other, I think he has Alienware. So maybe this lawyer is looking at some really high def pictures. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's like you wonder. Or maybe this lawyer was totally unaware. It's like, I need a computer and I went to Best Buy myself. So it could have just been incidental. But it's a really good question. I don't know if that's an own or a pwn. That's a really good one. I think any mention of Trump is a pwn because, God, Jesus, like that is not contributive to anything at this point. So yeah. But I love that there is a gamers always find a little nugget see we're still relevant we are that's right we are in culture the, i'm currently scanning a kotaku piece and apparently yeah this woman is a pwn uh this lawyer alina haba apparently was previously accused of racist behavior in a 2020 lawsuit by a former employee at her law firm uh, referring to Letitia James using racialized profanity. So other, there are allegedly recordings of her dropping the N-word. So there's a reason this woman is working on Team Trump, it seems. But <laughs> Wow. So, okay, let's keep it in the pwn bucket. Yeah, that, that's a pwn. None of that okay. makes me feel happy. Okay, do you have an own for us, Yost? Well, yes, I do have an own this week. Upstate New York is going to be hosting its 2023 retro game con on October 7th and 8th. So I guess it's somewhat of an announcement. Speaking of Renaissance fairs, I think retro game con should probably be up there too. It's a base, you know, play your old games. Yeah, there's tournaments, there's a game jam. I think you should go check this out. If you're really into renaissance fair lane and you should be there super smash brothers mortal kombat one rocket league tetris yeah beautiful syracuse new york yeah yikes I'm yikes i'm on the website and i already see a photo of a guy dressed like mario there you go so there you go so i could wear the, my cape, the... capelet it's true you could totally you could be link you could be link uh, i love that one of the one of the year's sponsors is Neopets. <laughs> yeah. The up and coming company. That's, that's right. So my students will be thrilled. So so that's a big one. I think the fact that's still alive, that it has its a renaissance fair of its own, I think that's wonderful. Retro that's Game Con. Amazing. Saturday and Sunday. God, maybe I could just ruin my girlfriend's weekend by insisting mm. she go to this with me. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. Join us next week. As we talk about, be sure to join us next week. Follow us on Substack, unboxingpodcast.substack.com. And do let us know if there's anything you'd like us to hear or cover. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming down the pipe. October is going to be user-generated content month. Yost will, be sharing inter Yost will be sharing interviews he's done with folks at Minecraft and Roblox. So we're going to have a lot to talk about. Please tune in, like, share, subscribe. Good night and good game.